0: Something a bit different comes your way from History of Westeros today. We'll have one foot in Martin's world, where it always stays, while the other takes a trip to a galaxy far, far away. You gotta be really flexible to have one foot in a galaxy far, far away while your other foot is in Westeros. Yeah, and you gotta have really long legs. You do not need to know anything about The Mandalorian or even Star Wars to follow along in this episode we're talking world-building, historical parallels, story arc parallels, and things of that nature, I will supply you with everything you need to know on that front, while frequently comparing it to the more familiar features of Planetos. It's kind of funny, we're talking Star Wars, but in a way that you have to understand A Song of Ice and Fire very well. So in a way, this is like a primer for Star Wars or The Mandalorian specifically, but it's only for A Song of Ice and Fire people. Speaking of The Mandalorian and the show itself, there will be Pretty light spoilers. We're not getting that deep into the plot of the show so much as we're looking at the setting and the history. In other words, we're more concerned with backstory than front story. If you do know The Mandalorian, you might find this one particularly fun because we'll be reliving a lot of that history from a different angle while highlighting a vast wealth of comparisons to the Blackfires, primarily as the title indicates, but it goes beyond the Blackfires to include their parent family, the Targaryens, and in turn, their nation of origin, the Valyrian Freehold itself, along with a few other connections here and there, because, well, I don't exactly have a lot of other Star Wars, A Song of Ice and Fire parallel episodes in the in the bank here. None, in fact. So what we do have, I'll want to... Lay out here for y'all while we have the chance so some other miscellaneous parallels will be included here as well so from george r martin to george lucas and back again all that and more on this episode of history of westeros hello and welcome everyone a bit different of an episode today should be a lot of fun but our setup is different as well no sean today uh no notes from nina uh, just our, just me and Ashea today should be fun, but yeah, like I said, a little bit different. This episode was not voted on by patrons. I, I forced it on everyone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> everyone voted against it.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, actually, they didn't vote against it. I, there was just no opportunity at all. But you can vote on almost every episode. If you're a patron, you can go to www.patreon.com slash history of Westeros to sign up. We still have the lowest levels available. They'll be going away in a few months or a little bit less so get in while you can at the cheaper level before it goes away we got lots of benefits like bonus episodes voting scripts cool nicknames that we come up for you or you come up with yourself all that fun stuff next week is high garden which was voted on and We will uh, continue along with that process. Let's as well start with a trivia question, as we so often do. Since this episode has a lot of discussion about armor and forges and things like that, I thought a question of that nature would be appropriate. So, where are the best forges on the Iron Islands? What location on the Iron Islands has the best forges? Some would say they're the best forges in all of Westeros, minus... Those run by, say, Kohorix Smiths like Tobho Mott. So let's talk about the early history of Mandalore, the planet where the Mandalorians live. Shocking. <laughs> it's Mandalore lore, or just Mandalore. But first, look, Ashay and I are decked out in our Mandalorian gear. I've got a Mandalorian shirt that says, this is the way. I've got a Mythosaur necklace. And a mythosaur ring. I don't normally like to wear rings during recordings because you can easily bang it on the microphone and get sounds. But I thought it was worth the risk today. Look at me living mm-hmm. dangerously. is decked out too. Look at that.
1: Yeah, I've got a Blood Raven shot first shirt uh, mashup made by Pat Doherty.
0: The name Pat Doherty might be familiar to y'all. We've talked about him before. He's a friend of the show. Been so for a long time. And one anecdote we re- uh, uh, Accounted to y'all was last year he proposed to San Rixian at Ice and Fire Con. It was wonderful and fun, and they're having a happy marriage. By the way, San Rixian and us are planning a, a, a episode together, so stay tuned for more info on that when we are ready to announce it.
1: Yeah, I've also got a Mythosaur pin from um, that Chuck of Fanomaniacs, also a listener gave me. I would move closer to show it to the camera, but I'm very paranoid about messing up my audio again, so I refuse to move. Uh, You'll just have to take my word for it
0: Yes, it's a cool pin, y'all So not unlike Westeros or perhaps even Essos There were sentient bipedal Species on Mandalore before the people Who eventually became known as The Mandalorians settled there In this case it wasn't something like the Children of the Forest But something more like the Giants They were called the Alamites. The Alamites aren't what we'd call civilized, as they don't build or write or farm or anything like that. Their tech level is roughly at the level of the Giants. I mean, they maybe have a loincloth mixed in here or there, some rudimentary tools, maybe some burials, not much else. The Alamites are human-sized, four eyes, four nostrils, and some number of tusks. They're not friendly to other species. In fact, they're said to eat humans. Uh, Also, maybe a little bit like what people say about the Giants, that said, though, not all Mandalorians are human. And human has a much broader meaning in the Star Wars universe anyway. A lot of alien species in Star Wars are actually former humans that have evolved into something different after their distant ancestors settled on some planet long ago, and you know since then they've adapted to their surv- uh, environment. As is fitting for a space fantasy setting where the distance between planets is no big deal. There's a lot of diversity here though some of that has developed over time. And I do say space fantasy rather than science fiction. I'm obviously a fan of Star Wars. I wouldn't be talking about it, but I do think it is more space fantasy than sci-fi. Science and the workings of technology aren't really a big part of the stories. They certainly exist, but it's not usually not part of the plot, right? Uh, It's more about, there are more magical sort of fantastical elements in Star Wars than in most science fiction stories. The approximate given date for the formation of the Mandalorian civilization is about 10,000 years before the formation of the Galactic Empire under Palpatine, which, you know, we see that right at the beginning of A New Hope, the first Star Wars movie. So 10,000 years is a familiar number, right? That's the same length of time roughly that we believe Westerosi civilization has existed roughly 10,000 years ago is when the first men started coming across. Some would say it was 8,000 years, but whatever. The timeline isn't specific, as it's not meant to be, but we're still dealing with a roughly similar time frame here. It didn't take long for the Mandalorians to overwhelm the Alamites, given their massive edge in technology, just like humanity was able to do the same to the giants. And just like the giants, they weren't all wiped out. The Alamites still managed to hang on to the fringes of civilization, but people thought they were extinct. The people thought they were all wiped out, kind of like the giants. Though it lacked other sentient species, Mandalore had plenty of other flora and fauna of note. In particular was the mythosaur, the one we've got Mm -hmm. iconography on our body of here. (laughs) A huge creature with scales and horns that could reach up to 15 meters slash 50 feet long. Let's talk about the mythosaur more specifically. A Mandalorian whose true name is lost to history ventured into a place now called the Mines of Mandalore and defeated one of these beasts without slaying it and emerged riding it. He was on its back when he finished. He was thenceforth called Mandalore the Great, the first rider of the Mythosaur. I think you can see where I'm going with this. At some point in the history of Valyria, someone tamed the first dragon. Now, theories aside about lost knowledge or being taught the mean to do so by another culture, it probably wasn't like a whole bunch of dudes and dudettes at once riding dragons. There was probably a first person. It may not have been a man, but a first person. Same here. There wasn't like a flood of myths or tamings on, on Mandalore all of a sudden. It was a rare event. Probably not unlike it was with dragons. It was probably a rare event early on. Now, of course, the Targaryens used magic and other things to... Or the Valyrians, rather, and the Targaryens used things to bind themselves to dragons in ways the Mandalorians never did. But it's still true that they had to tame them afterwards. Even Targaryens of the modern era had to select a dragon and bond with it and all that. So even if the dragons were engineered initially as a species, there's still the process of treating them like a regular animal and doing all the basic logistical things. It's kind of funny, actually, that it's a song of ice and fire that has the genetic engineering theories associated with this giant epic creature. (laughs) The the mythosaur is naturally evolved, apparently, whereas the dragons might've been engineered. It's kind of funny that the space fantasy with all the technology version has this untouched, unmodified beast. Whereas the Song of Ice and Fire is the one dealing with this sort of scientific genetic modification. But hey, that's uh, that's just how it is. And it's not like those things don't exist in Star Wars ever, elsewhere. There's lots of cloning and genetic manipulation of, of people, for example. It seems to be somewhat dinosaur-like, the mythosaur, which is appropriate for an ancient evolved megafauna. Uh, yeah, And dragons are pretty much the same, depicted and described that way. If the mythosaur were present in Old Valyria, they may have made it breathe fire like they did take the fireworm genes and put it into wyverns, if, if that's indeed what happened. I don't think they would have bothered trying to give a mythosaur wings because the wings you would need to make that thing fly are probably unrealistic. I mean, all you need is Red Oh, <laughs> So, they are you saying they should splice the genes of a red bull into it? I don't understand where you're going with this.
1: You know, Minotaur, Mythosaur.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Now I see where you're going with it. Okay. Yeah. And they do have the horns. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Mythosaurs can apparently live an absurdly long time, probably longer than dragons, who, who can at least live, you know, a couple centuries, if not more. Mythosaurs can apparently do a lot longer than that. But we actually... Adding to the ir- irony here, we know more about dragons than we know about mythosaurs, despite again it being a more technologically proficient environment where you would expect more history and study. It's just that the story hasn't taken us there yet. I suspect future seasons of The Mandalorian and/or some of the other projects around it might expand on this knowledge, which is true of Song of Ice and Fire as well. We're certainly going to learn more about dragons. But ever since this crucial founding event, the sigil of all the Mandalorian people is the mythosaur skull. This is extremely reminiscent of dragon skulls, especially because they're presented right at the start of A Song of Ice and Fire, only a few chapters in, as physical evidence of a time long gone, when families with dragons ruled Valyria and then Westeros. Same thing here, this marks another parallel. As we know in A Song of Ice and Fire, a main part of the story is the return of the dragons. The Mythosaur was also thought to be extinct in the Star Wars universe, but as the story progresses, we discover there's at least one left and maybe more beyond that. The return of dragons and the rediscovery of the Mythosaur have huge political implications for their respective stories as well because they're such important symbols of legacy, of leadership that were in place for eons. Not to mention as gigantic controllable beasts They're actually quite helpful in, you know, taking leadership in the first place through actual physical force or just intimidation. You don't necessarily actually need to use the Mythosaur or the dragon because people will probably just be like, okay, I bend the knee, y'all. I'm not fighting that. (laughs) And in both stories, the return of these ancient, again, I love to call them (laughs) megafauna, enables the return of a house to royal power. It enables that reclaiming of what was once lost because it was that which enabled them to claim that power in the first place and it's well known amongst their people that that was so. Let's talk about houses and clans within the Mandalorian uh, universe, world. Just as the Dragonlords rose to form and lead Valyria's most elite houses, so did the early Mandalorians who rode the Mythosaur rise to become the leading families of Mandalore. Like Westeros and many Earth societies, they have clans. Clan structure exists. A clan or multiple clans can form a house. Not quite the same as Westeros, but similar. For example, Rook, Saxon, Eldar, Krees, and Vizla are examples of prominent Mandalorian clans. Those are also, in some cases, Mandalorian houses. Vizla and Krees, for example, are also Mandalorian houses. To make the comparison complete, a house in Mandalorian culture would be if. House Stark, a clan named Clan Stark, rather. Let's say Clan Stark forms House Stark. And in House Stark is their closest vassals. Rather than them being considered separate vassals with separate names, they're considered part of House Stark. So imagine House Serwin or Kerwin or House Cassell. Yeah. They would just be part Sassel. of House Stark. Huh?
1: Cassell. Cassell, right?
0: House Cassell. <laughs> <all right>, yeah. <laughs> and the families that are Cataric loyalists. <laughs> and so that would be as if they would be all under one umbrella with one name where Clan Stark is still the dominant force within house Stark, so it's real you can see why that's really similar, but Mandalorian culture is a little bit less about blood relationship. family doesn't mean quite as much house means more house sometimes means family, but not always. so there isn't a vassal system that's the big there's no feudalism. Although there are feudal titles that remind us of feudalism in medieval societies. For example, there's lords and ladies amongst Mandalorians. There's duchesses and countesses and things like that. Very similar titles. Also similar to Westeros in the real world, clans and houses take on sigils and have banners from time to time. And these sigils very often feature animals. The sigil of House Visla, for example, uses the Shriekhawk hawk which is a predatory bird native to Mandalore. Early in the Mandalorian TV show, Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, forms Clan Mudhorn, named after the rhinoceros-like beast that bears that name, Mudhorn. Of course, their sigil is the Mudhorn. And later, Din Djarin swears allegiance to House Kreeze. So you could say Clan Mudhorn maybe is becomes part of House Kreeze. House Cast, another example out there, uses that's with a K, uses a coiled Vexus as their sigil, which is a sand snake of sorts. Not a darnish sand snake or even a bastard snake, but an actual snake-like being that lives in the sand. We actually saw a Vexus in the Rise of Skywalker movie when Rey heals an angry one deep in the tunnels. It reminds me again of fireworms. They keep coming up since they dig tunnels deep underground, tunnels that are later repurposed by humans because they're really good tunnels. The, they are, secrete like an oil that solidifies the sand around them as they're traveling through it. If it wasn't clear by now, Mandalorians are very overwhelmingly a warrior culture. They're not nearly entirely. I mean, we're talking about an entire planet. So surely not every single person it follows a warrior code and, and lives that life. But it's a lot of them. And uh, we're talking about a huge span of time here again. 10,000 years of Mandalorian history. So there's been ebbs and flows in that regard. But for the most part, they have been a warrior culture all that time. Maybe a little more like the Dothraki than other folks. But knightly Westerosi culture is pretty darn violent and stubborn and long lasting. So it fits that, fits that really well uh, in addition. Just as houses in Westeros have their ancestral armor and weapons... So do Mandalorian houses. A lot of times when you see a set of Mandalorian armor, it's been passed down over the generation. In some cases, hundreds of years. Maybe in a few cases, even longer. Which is also the case for Westeros. Think of the Royce armor or any number of Valyrian steel blades. Because they're not very creative, <laughs> Mandalore the Great took the title Mandalore. there's an apostrophe in there so i'm saying it it doesn't sound that different it looks different when written so this was his title which is kind of like king in a song of ice and fire terms mandalore the great is kind of like the Gardener King Gar- uh, or Garth the Gardner calling himself or Garth Greenhand calling himself King of the Reach or mm-hmm. the Reach. That's <laughs> a sticking an the apostrophe. The Garden.
1: In there. What's that? <laughs> the Garden. Yeah, the
0: Gardener King. <laughs> yeah. What Interfell? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just stick an apostrophe in there and make it sound fancier, more exotic, more authoritative. Apostrophes are powerful, y'all. Let me tell you. Wheel of Time fans might hear this name as a familiar sound because. It it rhymes with Rand AlThor, Mandalore. That is what I thought too. Wow, I'm <laughs> yeah, a real time fan. And it has the apostrophe too. <laughs> For what the title indicates, Mandalore, it's it's equivalent to someone calling themselves King of the Andals or King of the Roinar, King of the First Men. Only it would be King of the Mandalorians in this case, because you're you're declaring yourself King of a people, not just. A, a land, right? You're king of Westeros, but you're also king of all Andals, is is what they say, is what they claim. Obviously, Andals living in Essos don't consider themselves subjects of the Iron Throne, but, you know, that's how these titles work. They They tend to go beyond their actual authority. <laughs> So, King of the Mandalorians is effectively what the title Mandalore means. But eventually, the title of Mandalore was joined by the Office of the Protectors, who were essential royal bodyguards like the Roman Praetorians or the more familiar Westerosi Kingsguard. Absolutely. They were elite warriors chosen from amongst the various Mandalorian clans and houses, whose job was to keep the ruler alive from all sorts of threats like assassination, but they also led missions both secretly and openly, sometimes leading armies or at least soldiers of smaller amounts, also like the King's Guard. Also, also like the King's Guard, they have been at times in their history split during civil conflict or succession crises. When you're supposed to stay loyal to the king, but what if there's two kings? What if there's two Mandalores, right? So that's going to be a core feature of this episode since those succession crises, some of those at least, are similar to the Blackfire rebellions. It was important, though, that the Mandalorians be led by a warrior, given their origins as a overwhelmingly warrior culture. So while the title Mandalore is akin to King in many ways, in other ways, it is akin to Kal, or Captain General of the Golden Company. Something you do not get through heritage or bloodline, at least not usually, but by merit. And in terms of merit... It means beating lots of people in combat, establishing yourself as a warrior, showing yourself as brave and capable, rising through the ranks of your peers, which might involve killing some of them along the way. So Mandalore the Great, with his title and his gigantic beast that is still to this day the symbol of their culture 10,000 years later, Mandalore the Great set about to do what warrior culture king equivalents do. They get into fights. They start them. (laughs) Presumably... At first, this meant dominating his own planet of Mandalore. Back then, Mandalorians didn't have their trademark armor with all the gadgets on the Vambraces and the jetpacks and all that. That came later. So the Mythosaur, as a ridden beast, was even more formidable back then because, well, no one was flying around. Like, a a big lumbering beast isn't as intimidating when you can jetpack out of the way. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have that. At least not their individual words. They certainly had flight because, you know, space flight existed, but... The a- average Mandalorian warrior was nothing like what they were back then. Now, about a thousand years later, they did start to do that. <laughs> they uh, started to fly around and add on to their kit and their armor. But we'll get to that a little bit later. That won't be very long from now, given the rate we're going through the timeline. Early Mandalorians did have the trade har- hark? <laughs> trademark helmet, though. The one that we all associate with Mandalorians. Have you ever seen Boba Fett? It's one of the first thing you notice yeah, about on him. On
1: his shirt right now. Yeah, on
0: my shirt right now. It's called a macro binocular viewplate, which even a lot of Star Wars fans probably didn't know. And that's a fitting name, and it's fitting in general, because it's so recognizable and cool. It's also fitting because it's a helmet, and it would be uncomfortable if it didn't fit properly. They wear them a lot. You really want your helmet to fit properly when you have it on that much. hmm <laughs> After subduing the entire planet, he set about conquering other worlds. Something not very comparable to (laughs) Westeros. uh, Although you can consider continents kind of like other worlds. And he was largely successful at this. Now, we're not so sure he or his brethren actually, like, brought Mythosaurs with them while conquering other planets. It's a bit much to put on a ship, but who knows? I mean, it's... It's not that crazy i mean technology exists to do that and the golden company b- does bring elephants with them on ships and those are made of wood not dura steel or whatever star wars ships are made from not to mention danny's dragons have been on ships not when they were particularly large but still if you can put a dragon on a ship of wood you might be able to put a mythosaur on some giant spaceship let's keep our minds open here
1: i'm picturing yeah and uh Han Solo, the kind of creatures that he was uh, yeah. transporting, and then the ship—that's
0: you know? true. They do haul some dangerous animals, don't they? Yeah,
1: yeah, they were hauling some very dangerous, big animals. So
0: yeah, those things have to move somehow, right? So, uh, but they're
1: now—do they? Do they have to move planets somehow? <laughs> no, I, I don't, don't know if they really need—they don't that.
0: have to. They don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> we just want them to. So, but here's a here's a conundrum, though. There's exceptions, but. In the Star Wars universe, humans don't really live all that much longer than they do in the real world. In Westeros, they live a little bit less because, you know, they don't have understanding of bacteria, you know, and basic, a lot of basic health stuff, which they do in Star Wars. But still, so how does Mandalore the Great, how did this guy live so long, right? This is, he conquered his own planet, then moved on to conquer other planets. Like, this is, this sounds like a long period of time, doesn't it? So it brings us to yet another parallel here. First of all is that Mandalore the Great may not have been human. That was likely the case for the pre-Disney version of this character, but it remains unclarified in the new Disney canon. Now, for those who don't know, lots of stories were written in the Star Wars universe before Disney bought it from George Lucas, and there wasn't any management of that. So There's all sorts of overlap and inconsistencies, so Disney kind of canceled it all and is reusing some of it, making sense out of some of it. So some of this stuff, there's two versions of some of these stories. I'm using the current Disney canon that's been clarified. Uh, so just just so you know. So the other possibility, though, is that Mandalore the Great is like a Grey King, Garth Greenhand, Brandon the Builder, uh, Bloodstone Emperor-type figure. One whose deeds don't really seem to fit within one lifetime, which either means there was something extending their life in the Song of Ice and Fire setting, or... As with a lot of these Age of Heroes figure, we we theorize that maybe there's multiple people that held this title or, or so ascribed these deeds, in part to make them sound more fancy and epic over time. So quite possibly, Mandalore the Great is multiple people. It just that kept taking on that title, Mandalore the Great. Mandalore. Again, Mandalore.
1: That's the Mandalore.
0: <laughs> it's easy to see how this could get confused, given how the planet's called mandalore the title is mandalore and the guy is named mandalore the great like maybe mix it up a little but hey we're used to that we're a song of ice and fire fans this is just like a dude this is just like another Aegon, right (laughs) or a daron or a brandon right this we're used to people with the same name as we'll see later Though, there are good reasons why, even in a setting like this, with technology and all, there's no records to disprove or verify these myths. And in long of Ice and Fire, you can easily see why these things aren't kept track of. It's a little harder to see that in a Star Wars setting. But again, as I said, it will become clear and it will make sense as we move forward. The next notable historical marker in Mandalorian history is their wars against the Jedi, which came as a result of the semi-relentless warring under Mandalore the Great and his successors, or if it was still him. You know, I should have called him Brandalore the Great if we're going to (laughs) combine him with Brandon the Builder. Yeah, Brandalore. Mm, Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Now, I say warring and not conquest because they didn't always care about that part. They did conquer the space near them, but the farther out they went, kind of like Valyria, the less incentive there was to control it and more incentive there was just to take slaves or wealth or just to fight in the case of mandalorians it was more just for fighting or for honor's sake at one point in their early history a, gr- a new group of mandalorians emerged who wore an early version of that famous helmet over robes and rudimentary armor they were called mandalorian crusaders and it's exactly what it sounds like they went out and just started fights and attack people that didn't follow their values. It was kinda kinda crappy, really. <laughs> just picking fights just because people were weak, and they're like, well, you're too weak, so we gotta destroy you because you're weak. You offend us with your weakness. Yeah. Pretty Valyrian, honestly. <laughs> a, a different attitude, different reason why they would pick on people, but just starting fights and subjugating lesser beings. Pretty similar. The Mandalorian Crusaders, not only did they I said swords and armor. Now, yeah, these are technological things, though. These were electro-swords. Many of them rode semi-sentient basilisk droids into combat. These are, this is like a warhorse, but that can fire missiles and, and lasers and stuff. So, you know. Some of them even had lances, though. So they were, tr- they were really trying to be like what we think of as knights, but in space. <laughs> right? Space knights, so... And, of course, the variety of armor is going to be pretty spectacular. So Dantos would love the heraldry, and so would we if we got to see it. So all sorts of different armors and colors and sigils. It would be very familiar. I think a lot of people, you could probably compare it a lot to, I don't know, like a Warhammer 40k setting where you see, like, just large painted or well-customized armies of, of Mandalorians instead. Early version Mandalorians. And this institution apparently lasted for millennia, unlike, say, the real world version or equivalencies in Westeros and Essos of, like, the you know the Faith of the Seven or the the Warrior Sons, things like that. The Mandalorian Jedi Wars are our next mini subject here. It was on one of these many Mandalorian Crusades that they devastated the world of Abduria, the homeworld of a race that. Established one of the earliest trade empires in the Star Wars galaxy. So this is still a long time ago, probably 9000 years ago. They saw the Abdurians as cowards, which meant they had to be attacked. Think of the free cities. Very mercantile. Think of how the, the Dothraki look on such people as cowardly. But unlike the Dothraki the Mandalorians actually attack these guys because the Dothraki need the free cities to sell their slaves to and things like that. The Mandalorians don't think of it that way. They're just like, we're not into this. We're not into in this for money or loot. But it's a similar level of contempt for people who trade and live that lifestyle rather than live the life of a warrior. So yeah, early Mandalorians are seeming more Dothraki than Valyrian. But we're getting there. We're getting there. It's going to change over time. So it was during this particular crusade, as I understand it, that they first encountered the Jedi, who had been around at least 15,000 years by this point. So the Jedi were not new on the scene and had mastered use of the Force, you know, well before. So, it's, if you don't know what the Jedi are, I assume most of you are, do, but they're basically monk mystics with effectively magical powers. There were actually many, many wars between them, spanning thousands of years. This period perhaps aligns best with the eons-long wars between the First Men and the Children of the Forest, or the ensuing wars between the First Men and the Andals. Those conflicts also took place over thousands of years, apparently. So, it's a, a great parallel. It's fitting for this comparison, too, that most Jedi aim to be what's the levels you start as an initiate you start then you go to padawan which is kind of like a squire and an initiate's kind of like a page the lowest level and then you become a knight a jedi knight or a regular knight so there's three levels there and then above that you have jedi master which the equivalent would be like landed knight which are called masters of certain castles like if you're a landed knight and you rule a castle you're master of that castle not lord of that castle that's a distinction that some of y'all may not have ever caught before so, it's kind of like squiring from a great house. Being a squire from a great house would be like the equivalent of a Padawan, I suppose. So, another thing about Jedi, yes, it's the Force is basically magic with a rudimentary scientific explanation. But basically magic, especially from the perspective of the Mandalorians. If we're looking at it from their perspective they know very little about the Force, and they they got dudes who are waving their hands and moving objects, telekinesis and mind control. That looks like magic, right? They say the Force is part of every living thing, which is not too unlike what they say about the old gods. Here's a little quote.
1: The gods are all around us, in the rocks and streams, in the birds and beasts.
0: Yes, that's exactly what they say about the Force. <laughs> it's in everything. If the Force is new to you... There's nothing wrong with that. But there was a lot wrong with that for the ancient Mandalorians because they didn't know what they were getting into. But their code of honor demanded that they fight, like, everyone, I guess. Anyone worthy and even those unworthy because they were obviously picking on those that they called cowards. Really, they're just fighting everyone. So despite the Jedi's great advantage, the Mandalorians just had to fight them, even though they kept losing they just had to keep trying. It was it was their honor demanded it. And well, it it didn't go so well. They weren't a creative or imaginative people, you could say, given their naming schemes. But when motivated, they certainly could be inventive. Their normally uninspired technological advancement kicked into high gear because they finally had a new reason to do so. They finally ran into a foe they couldn't beat. Rather than not fighting them, which is what a lot of which is what a logical conclusion a lot of people would have come to, they just said, "Well, how can we beat them? What do we need to do to defeat the Jedi?" So, they didn't have to adapt until they had to, and then they did. And they went big on those adaptations when they got there. These losses spurred A phase of technological development never seen before. And of course, it was geared toward defeating the Jedi, who to them again seemed like wizards. Now here's a quote from Arya and Fat Tom to describe that general attitude. What if a wizard was sent to kill him?
1: Well, as to that, Desmond replied, drawing his longsword, wizards die the same as other men once you cut their heads off.
0: And as we said, Mandalorian Crusaders and... Modern Mandalorians sometimes fight with swords or sword equivalents in addition to blasters and all the expected higher-tech weaponry in the setting. But the warrior culture still values close combat most of all. It's There's more honor in beating a foe up close than shooting them. They don't shun long-distance combat. They just see more honor in close combat, just like knights do. Knights mostly fight up close. They leave the archery to others for the most part, but they don't shun it, right? There's lots of knights who are experts with the bow. Brendan Blackfish, current Kingsguard Balon Swan, was the last challenger to Angai the Archer. He was, like, second place in the uh, hands tournament. The problem was that despite this... The Jedi, as well as having the so-called wizard powers, a.k.a. attunement to the Force, were still better at cutting off heads than Mandalorians were. <laughs> this was in part due to their lightsabers, which are swords of plasma that can cut through almost anything. Again, we're dealing with an easy parallel here. Fire swords are not unfamiliar in A Song of Ice and Fire lore. Hello, Lightbringer. Hello, Wildfire Swords. Hello, Swords of Flame lit by Relore. And, of course, Valyrian steel can cut through almost anything, too, like a lightsaber. Familiar elements everywhere. Mm -hmm. Let's get something even more familiar, though, the Mandalorian armor. So, most of these technological advancements spurred on by their conflicts with the Jedi were geared towards upgrading the famous and feared and very identifiable Mandalorian armor. The helmet expanded to become a full kit. Not just a helmet, a full suit. Not unlike a Knight of Westeros, Or, you know, other non-knightly armored warriors of Westeros and Essos. They like other... Knights aren't the only ones who wear lots of armor. But, you know, some don't, like the Dothraki. The first suit of Mandalorian armor the vast majority of us ever saw was Boba Fett in The Empire Strikes Back. And that one appearance of that one character and his subsequent appearance in the next movie and a bajillion comics and video games, well... People just thought he was so cool. I mean, he's kind of like the Red Viper, in a sense, because he had very little screen time, but he became such an enormously popular character. And it was mostly based on his look in, in Boba Fett's part. You know, the Red Viper had lots of dialogue and lines. He was a little more deeply involved for that short period until his role was expanded. And for Boba Fett, at first it was just based on his look. He had like a couple of lines. His role wasn't large at all. But, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire is familiar with the concept of falling for a character based on very little screen time. The Red Viper isn't nearly the only example there. There's lots of characters we love that have barely been seen. (laughs) That's that's what comes with being really deep in a fandom, right? So this brings us back to another comparison, something we pointed out in our episode. I think it was our episode on The Children of the Forest when we brought up George R. R. Martin's short story and Seven Times Never Kill Man. Because here's a photo. Shay and I went to a Star Wars exhibit here in Georgia, here near Atlanta, where it had a, it's the largest private collection of Star Wars figurines. And, for example, here is the Ralph McQuarrie design of Boba Fett. This was the original design for Boba Fett, which eventually became more of uh, the Stormtrooper version. Now, Ralph McQuarrie, if you recall, his original design for the Jane She was borrowed for chewbacca or looked like chewbacca and got borrowed for that so it was being drawn for george and ended up being used in star wars (laughs) and ralph McQuarrie also was involved in the design of the first stormtrooper as you can see very similar to the boba fett thing here uh with sword and shield so even the early stormtroopers We're going to fight with swords and shields. They were eventually. They were all going to have lightsabers, but eventually George Lucas decided that those would be only amongst. Those would be used a lot less. Lightsabers would be a rare weapon rather than a common one. Each Mandalorian warrior has options for what to equip on their vambraces: a variety of projectiles that pierce, poison, paralyze, or pulverize. Just perfect
1: for action figures. Yeah,
0: exactly. I'm an action figure ad right now. Yes. Yeah. Ropes that grapple, blades, shields, even flamethrowers. Imagine buy f- the
1: expansion pack today. Yeah, buy the
0: expansion. <laughs> Imagine that with wildfire, right? Get a green special fire special
1: wildfire expansion <laughs> available only in your local Target, <laughs> not Walmart.
0: I say, Mister Mister uh, Calling as a toy marketer. Apparently, <laughs> you're good at this. Look at this natural ability.
1: <laughs> now, of
0: course, so of course, these things were. Designed to surprise the Jedi to give them
1: now with new surprises. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, it's best to take a Jedi by surprise to nullify them before they can even break out their lightsaber. But if you can't do that, it's not always going to work out so well. Jedi aren't the easiest to sneak up on. The Mandalorians discovered and made use of an extremely potent metal, which they call Beskar.
1: New Beskar! New Beskar in stores armor! stores now! <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> and Beskar, yes. If you're thinking of Valyrian steel here, you should be. And a nickname for Beskar in the Star Wars universe the is... The Beskar. Beskar, yeah. Best, <laughs> Beskar. Mandalorian steel is what a lot of non-Mandalorians call it, so... There you go. The tie the the parallel gets even tighter. Beskar is light and extremely durable. <laughs> stays crispy in milk. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, I am picturing there's like a specific episode of Futurama where they do Saturday morning Fun Pit. You know where they show all the old like like the like little animated uh, children's cartoons. You know, and they do one that's basically just like a very like a, a modern children's show where like. Fry comes in as the orange character, and then it cuts to commercial, and it's like, now with with new orange puffs, with real orange, and then like every time they introduce a new character into the cartoon, it cuts to commercial, and it's just an ad for that. Uh, Anyway, uh, that's what I'm channeling here. There would
0: be lots of ads in this one, then, if we were (laughs) following that pattern. So Beskar can easily repel blaster shots and can actually repel lightsabers to a certain degree. It can lightsaber like held up to Beskar will heat it and it'll glow, but it won't be enough to like melt it. Maybe like a direct piercing strike can get through, but it's 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 close. It's the only metal known to the Star Wars universe that can do that though, that can that can handle a lightsaber. Now, we're not actually sure the full extent of the powers of Valyrian steel armor in A Song of Ice and Fire, though we do know a suit exists and we're eager to see what it does. So, One feature of Euron's suit, though, is that it's covered in runes and sigils and stuff, which, again, you see that on Mandalorian armor, too. Not Valyrian sigils and runes, (laughs) but you see customizing and heraldry and sigils and maybe, like, markers of things they've done, you know, like achievements, things like that. Mm -hmm. There's obvious similarities to a knight's kit, starting with the helmet as always. I mean, we see a variety of helmet shapes in A Song of Ice and Fire in medieval worlds. Mandalorian helmets are a little more uh, similar to each other. They have that identifiable faceplate, but beyond that, things change. Now, one big difference is there is a religious taboo, which we're talking about an entire culture, so not everyone adheres to this taboo as thoroughly as others. Some perhaps not at all. But the taboo is on Beskar weapons. Since Beskar weapons can pierce Beskar steel, Beskar armor rather, it's considered wrong. They shouldn't exist. At one point, if you've seen the Mandalorian, you saw there was a Beskar spear made by non-Mandalorians and when the Mandalorians got a hold of it, they melted it down and turned it into armor. Now there's a little bit of a gray area here, just like there are with a lot of tools that are used in a medieval or pre-medieval society that can double as weapons. A spear is meant to hunt animals, not people, but it certainly works against people. Same thing with hammers and axes. Hammers are meant for hammering objects, not people, but they work on people. And axes are meant for trees, but they work on people. Swords, as we've said many times, are a symbol of violence against humans because that's the only thing they're good for. Even a knife has other uses. A sword? A sword? Used as a dinner implement is, that's really not a good choice. <laughs> it's unwieldy and maybe even a little dangerous. Just not, not efficient at all. So in this case, Mandalorian weapons are, uh, there's a little bit of gray area as well. Because hammers are okay. Hammers can be used as weapons. We see a, a particular Mandalorian, the armorer, using her weapon, her hammer as a weapon. But it's, all, it's meant to be more as, well, as a forging hammer. And, of course, other adornments, colors, some Mandalorian armors, shiny like metal, but you see all sorts of colors painted onto it, red, greens, greens, yellows, blues, whatever. And sometimes these colors are meant to denote allegiance to a certain cause or subgroup, also like you would see in Westeros. Let's talk about the Mines of Mandalore. The Mines are a sacred place filled with... uh, an installation called the Great Forge and many lesser forges around it, all capable of making and remaking Beskar. In some ways, it's more like the Mines of Moria from Lord of the Rings than something from A Song of Ice and Fire, right down to a huge ancient beast lurking in the depths, right? The Balrog in the case of Lord of the Rings versus the Mythosaur. Now, who would win in that fight? Balrog versus the Mythasaur. That's like a Godzilla kind of battle right there. (laughs) This is, of course, comparable to the mines of not just Valyria, but yeah, plenty of other worlds. I mean, we're talking mines here. Those exist all over the place in the real world, too. The mines in current Star Wars timeline era seem to be mostly flooded, but when they were active, they were probably a lot hotter or maybe really hot. Valyria, of course, their mines were super, super hot. It was a constant problem for their slaves. Mining was a core activity of their culture. Well, rather, a core activity of their slaves, And, of course, they were harvesting all sorts of raw materials and minerals from their volcanoes and nearby mines. Here's where I want to shout out our friend Mikal Schick, who did an episode on her YouTube channel called Mandalorthodox! Jewish History and Modern Practice in the Mandalorian. She even got a shout out from Ryan Airy of Screen Crush, so congrats on that. Because, yes, the Mandalorian also borrows a good bit of religious uh, culture from Judaism, especially Orthodox Judaism. And right down to things like the Living Waters, which is a direct thing from Judaism. It's also from a religion called Mandaism, which you might think is an even tighter parallel because of the name. But Mandaism is barely understood or researched or explored by westerners it is actually a larger religion than you might think but J- judaism is much bigger in the west so either way check out Me- uh mccall's uh, youtube stream on this we put the link down in the description the description down and it's in link the, in the description yes
1: and it's in the live stream chat
0: yes so the mythosaur is apparently capable of living deep within these waters or any waters which greatly enhances the religious and cultural significance of the mines themselves. It's their trademark beast in their trademark zone. The mines are like super important to them and the Mythosaur is their sigil of their entire culture. So yeah, and the very first Mythosaur was supposedly tamed by Mandalore the Great in these very same mines. Again, reminder of the fireworms perhaps. The Fourteen Flames were destroyed during the Doom of Valyria, and likewise during events we'll describe during the second half of this episode. It appeared as if the mines, along with much else, was destroyed forever, too. That turned out to be not so true, which also makes it an easy parallel to the fate of the mines of the Freehold. There's some suspicion that some parts of Valyria aren't uninhabitable after all, or at least you can go there temporarily, Which is similar to the minds of Mandalore. It was a mistaken belief. People thought it was destroyed. People thought it was untouchable. People thought it was cursed. A variety of stories were told about it. And some of those rumors may have been started by other people to keep people away. Which is also theories we have about Valyria. Some people may not want the exploration to happen because then they'll discover what's really happening there. Or what's really available there. Or just for whatever reason they wanted to keep it secret. So if Euron was telling the truth in part or in whole about going to Valyria, the, par- the parallel gets even stronger. Regardless, the parallels don't end there. Beskar is not a metal that just comes out of the mines ready to go. It requires a very special process to forge, create, and mold properly. It's a secret guarded by the revered Mandalorian armors and passed down to a very few select deemed capable and worthy. Now, as far as we know, they don't. that doesn't involve human sacrifice, but it's similar to the Valyrian steel in that it is a closely guarded secret, something highly valuable, and it's been that way for eons. Also, we have another irony here. Uh, the Mandalorians give Beskar a lot more religious significance than the Valyrians give to theirs. We don't know that the Valyrians give it any religious significance. They certainly valued it, but not... They weren't in awe of it, I don't think. Not, not in religious awe, anyway. So it's kind of weird that in a space fantasy setting, again, like I said, this is another irony, Mandalorian armors are of higher social status than most anything in their culture. It's kind of odd to have a, some, a futuristic setting where armorers are so highly regarded, whereas that's not necessarily the case in Westeros. Some smiths are very highly valued, but they're not, they don't have really high social status. Unless they're rich, which it's the wealth that gives them the social status, not their job. But no one knows how to make Valyrian Steel anymore, so that secret was lost. And only the Kohorik knew how to remake it, and they guard that secret really jealously as well. So it's a, it's a similar enough thing, even though the reasons they guard it are for different reasons. are for different motivations, rather. And another difference here is Mandalorian armor is as valuable as they are. As far as we know... They still have to be warriors. Like, that still comes first. And The blood mages of Valyria, who made Valyrian steel and oversaw whatever sacrifices needed to happen, probably weren't warriors. <laughs> they probably spent their time with books and, and spells, and that's about it. Now, the religious significance also has a big impact on how the metal is treated out in the rest of the universe, in the galaxy, because... While we're not entirely sure how Valerius saw their steal, again, there's no indication that they revered it like the Mandalorians do. The idea of Mandalorians selling Beskar is essentially unheard of. That would be like blasphemy almost. In fact, many Mandalorians believe that all Beskar belongs to them, to their culture, not them specifically, not individuals. But if there's Beskar out in the world, it belongs to Mandalorians. No one else should be allowed to own it. That's that's how hardcore they are about it in some cases. Valyria, not so much. They were willing to sell Valyrian steel, though they expected a lot for it. So, Westerosi houses, however, it does bring up another parallel. Westerosi houses did not, in turn, sell their Valyrian steel. Once they acquired it, they clung to it jealously, stubbornly, Whatever. Recall how hard Tywin Lannister tried to buy a Valyrian steel blade from other houses, only to be rebuffed, even by those houses who really needed the money, even by impoverished houses. And again, we have to imagine, as we usually do, whenever Tywin's offering money, it's a lot, right? Tywin uses his wealth like a weapon. He doesn't stint. He uses it intentionally, overwhelmingly, to show how powerful he and his house are. So Westerosi reverence and attachment to their ancestral weapons is close to the Mandalorian reverence for their armor, at least the, the steel or the metal it's made out of. But also the actual suits of armor that have been passed through generations. So we have a little of both there. Something else we see in the Song of Ice and Fire. Again, I'll, I've mentioned this already, but a reminder, this is similar to like House Royce and their armor, the bronze armor with the runes on it, or the original sword ice before it was a Valyrian steel Version, which that version is only 400 years old, but the tradition of the Starks having a sword called Ice goes well beyond that. Lots of crowns too that have passed down over generations, not just the Targaryen ones, but other ones. But what happens when an item or any item passed down through generations or more becomes associated with not just family but ruling? Well, this brings us to the first parallel I noticed. The biggest one of all here, in my opinion, which led me to all the rest of these parallels. It was the opening to the rabbit hole, a rabbit hole that I found very deep, as you can see. It's a whole episode. We'll get to that in the second half. All right, friends, we have uh, not a lot to say here at the mid-roll. I'm going to get right back to it quickly, but I did want to say a couple of things. Mark Stanley, who played gren on the game of thrones was also one of the knights of ren, ren. in uh, the force awakens mm-hmm. and uh Re- rise of skywalker and the, f- the, the middle last one jedi. last jedi the one i like the most out of the <laughs> i can't think of that one uh so he's the knight of gren clearly <laughs> <laughs> and our good friend rudy what's up rudy shouts out or the mandalorian helmet is perfect dread pirate roberts mask oh yes Actually, that's a great segue. Thanks, Rudy, because 30. Star Wars does what a lot of people think A Song of Ice and Fire does, which is secret identities, people who turn out to be someone else. To be fair, it makes sense in Star Wars because there's lots of helmets and masks. It's a part of the setting. It makes sense. It's technology, which is what Rudy's saying here. You can have the same person wearing the same helmet across generations, and you'd never know how many people it was or if it was just one being because again in the star wars universe you can have beings who live longer than the human span because they might not even be human Mm -hmm. so that's a a great parallel as well mandalore the great
1: was actually three grogu yodas (laughs) standing (laughs) on each other (laughs) with a helmet on
0: well he was the mandalore the really great then yeah
1: yeah I, I felt that I, I the we greats. don't know the, the the species name for Yoda species but I'm like well Grogu Yoda species I can't just say Yoda these days <laughs> Grogu true. is also a big deal to me
0: Yeah just the Yoda species what do we call that yeah There's no name
1: for them so people <laughs> often just, just yeah. yeah that's why people said baby Yoda we don't know a name for their species that's part of how yeah, they I, keep... I mean and poor poor gaddles not even mentioned when <laughs> I say that but you know
0: they they're so secretive, they don't even want people to know the name of their species.
1: <laughs> but I have one.
0: Oh, look mm-hmm. at that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, let's talk about the Darksaber. As usual, since we're dealing with large groups of people, and even as the Mandalorian Wars with the Jedi raged on and off for ye- eons, a child was born to House Visla with notable natural ability in the Force. He was Tara Visla, though at the time, there was no House Visla. If you're guessing that he formed it, you are correct. And if you're guessing that the parallel to the Darksaber is the sword Blackfire, you are also correct. Give yourself a double pat on the back if you did that. Why was Tara Vizsla the first Mandalorian Jedi? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Or maybe even better. Or, or, well, whatever. You're welcome to guess, too. (laughs) I don't know how good your guess is. I haven't heard it. It's entirely... I mean, it doesn't really make sense that in thousands of years there would have been no other Mandalorians with Force sensitivity, but it would make sense that they wouldn't develop that and that the Mandalorian families would be against that. They would look at that as, like, evil or some sort of... The Jedi did this. They planted this seed in your child and it's going to grow into our enemy. So I imagine they looked down on this when it happened. But Tara Vizslo perhaps was... For whatever reason, no one threw him to the wolves as a child or threw him off a rock or whatever warrior culture societies do with unwanted children. I don't know that the Mandalorians actually do this. In fact, Mandalorian society is actually very friendly to orphans. It's, it's part of their cultural belief that if you rescue a young child, and you should, you're responsible for them. Period. You don't. <laughs> hey, how about that? <laughs> you're not just responsible for their birth, you're responsible for taking care of them afterwards what a novel idea so it's unknown why but you can see why mandalorians didn't become jedi or develop their force powers over time because it was an enemy this was what their enemies do you don't take on the beliefs of your enemies now eventually over time so many thousands of years this loosened a little bit or maybe some sort of Culmination of events happened that allowed Taravizla to not be noticed by the powers that be, in part perhaps because he wasn't born into a noble house. The fact that he was uh, maybe a commoner may have helped him escape notice. But he was initiate. But this didn't happen as an adult for him. It was his family that gave him to the Jedi because he was a child. He became an initiate like a page, and we did that comparison earlier in the episode. And he did well. He moved up to Padawan, you know, Squire. And he then became a Jedi Knight eventually. And this is far into the future from where we were. At this point in time, the Mythosaur was believed to be extinct. The skulls remained, the sigil, of course, remains even now. The symbol endured, but kind of like the post-Draconic era of the Targaryens they started to think a little differently because the, yes, the old way is valuable, but the old way included things that no longer exist. So a little bit of change filtered through. 9,000 years after the formation of the Mandalorian civilization is when this happened. So, like I said, way later. So this is less than 20 years before the Jedi Temple was built on Coruscant and about 1,000 years before characters like Mon Mothma, Padme Amidala, Lorsan Tekka, Even Babu Frick, all those characters were born within a few years of each other, by the way. About half the main characters from Rogue One as well, like Krennic and Baze Baze and uh, Chirrut and all those guys. And, of course, Anakin Skywalker, another important character in that universe. So he did something that had grave impact on the future of his people while being entirely normal for a Jedi initiate. Young Taravizla did what all Jedi young Jedi do. He made his own lightsaber. It seemed it's a normal thing for a Jedi to do, but it turned out to be not so normal. It was called the Darksaber. A lightsaber of literal black fire. <laughs> M, right? What would you call it? A lightsaber? What's the equivalent here? A lightsaber, you just L Y G H T? <laughs> yes, it was a lightsaber, yes. Unlike other lightsabers, it had a more traditional sword hilt. Like, actually like a modern sword hilt and shape, while also having Mandalorian stylization to it. See what I mean? Look at that parallel. This, as I said, is the thing I first noticed that got me into this rabbit hole. Blackfire, dark saber, a sword of Blackfire, hello. It even has a hilt of Beskar. So it even makes the Valyrian seal comp even tighter. So we don't know that much about Tara Vizsla's career, unfortunately. It wasn't very long, though. We do know he went back to Mandalore and formed House Vizsla along with Clans Wren and Clan Saxon, where he took the Shriek Hawk as the sigil for House Vizla. By the way, the Darksaber also emits a different kind of sound than a typical lightsaber, and the sound is kind of like a shriekhawk. It's more of a shrieky sound think of him uh, you know think of this guy a warrior culture that doesn't back down against Jedi that has the powers and armaments of a Jedi so with all his advantages he was the ultimate warrior in a warrior culture unlike his a song of ice and fire counterpart Damon Blackfire he actually succeeded and became Mandalore whereas Damon Blackfire was shot with arrows I guess the equivalent here would have been shot by blasters or poison darts you, or something
1: give me manda dead manda,
0: yeah, that's right manda. <laughs> manda not living anymore yes so we're not sure by how he died probably fighting because you know live by the sword die by the sword he was dead by the time of the fall of the old republic which came only about 18 years after he made the darksaber so Old Republic, quick side history here. You've heard of the Republic probably in Star Wars. It's the thing that has just fallen at the beginning of A New Hope, the first movie, that the Emperor has just turned it into an empire. The rebels are trying to turn it back into a republic. Well, the Old Republic was a thousand years basically before the Republic you see at the beginning of the movies. And in between the two, there's the High Republic, which is...
1: just the peak of the Republic.
0: Right. And that's only a few hundred years before uh the first movies.
1: Yeah, like Yoda is alive and and on the Jedi Council in the high count in the high republic era.
0: Yeah, right. and we're going to see a TV show called The Acolyte that's set in mm-hmm. that era. And there's a lot of great books set there. Yeah. I highly recommend The Light of the Jedi is the first book yeah. in that series I that mean. I really really recommend. Yeah. Shay and I both loved yeah. it.
1: And Acolyte is indeed the Star Wars show I'm most looking forward to. Can't yeah. Wait.
0: It's going to focus on Sith stuff, so yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we know all this because after his death the Jedi Order somehow got a hold of his Darksaber. Either they, either he wasn't killed on Mandalore, or he died somewhere else. Somehow they got the Darksaber, not other Mandalorians, and placed it in the just-mentioned Jedi Temple on Coruscant that was built atop of a Sith enclave that kind of was like a, a hinge of power because it still emitted, like, dark power, dark energy. The Statue of Tara is was placed he it, it's the, the dark saber was like placed near him or whatever and this statue is still standing a thousand years later so probably because the old republic was collapsing this probably enabled what happened next which which was that house visla took advantage of the chaos and sacked the jedi temple stealing the dark saber back for their house and then used it to try to Conquer Mandalore. They tried to use Blackfire. Or they Dark Darksaber like the Aegon's, the Sixth Faction and Connington's faction is using Blackfire to, or probably using Blackfire to help use it as a symbol of power and restore their faction to greatness. So Visel was revered by his house because of his great warrior abilities and because he was different and capable and, um, well, he ev- evoked a lot of the warrior ethos that make Mandalorians proud of their people, the things that they that they uh, want to be, that they have ambition to become. So Tara Vizsla had not only made House Visla, he made them a royal house. And from then on, the symbol of that power was the Darksaber. To some, and especially those of House Vizsla, the wielder of the Darksaber was the true heir to Mandalore. Which isn't really how their system worked, was it? Right? Their system was the best warrior or best fighter should be Mandalore. And it also bears mentioning that there isn't always a Mandalore. Different times in Mandalorian history, there's just been a bunch of ruling houses that are, have uneasy pieces or are at wars with each other. And there is no one above everyone. Think of it like a king beyond the wall. There's lots of clans, tribes beyond the wall, Sometimes a figure emerges To unite them all Like a Mance raider. There isn't always a Mance raider, though Sometimes there's just no one like that And occasionally there's 50 to 100 years Between Kings, be, uh, kings Beyond the Wall like that So think of it like that And it worked sometimes Sometimes it didn't Their intent was to unite Not just Mandalore but House Visla, And from there, once uniting their house They could go on to greater things but the sword was how they wanted to do this, not by the former means of taking power. So not everyone was on board with this. Bringing us to a state of affairs we found during the original Blackfire rebellions in Westeros, where some people thought Aegon the Unworthy giving the sword to Daemon Blackfire meant he was the man to rule. But not everyone agreed with that. <laughs> so you have believers versus non-believers and eventually it comes to a head and goes to war not unlike some of the things that we're about to describe for the mandalorians the house in their way was house crees who were the royal family of the era in which our next milestone occurs a familiar name actually this isn't what they call it it's the doom of mandalore they call it Uh, The Mandalorian Cataclysm, but the Doom of Valyria was a cataclysm, so I'm taking a little liberty and calling it the Doom of Mandalore. They were unable to learn from their past. Shockingly enough, just like Westeros, Cousin learn from its past and just continues to fight and fight and fight and have squabbles over the same things. The Mandalorians just kept fighting the Jedi, just kept going, couldn't stop themselves, just couldn't back down. Thousands of years are passing by while all this is going. They... Their society becomes more and more geared towards war and towards beating this unbeatable foe. More and more of the surface of Mandalore is turned into mining and industrial things that aren't good for human civilization or for animals or trees or any of that. Strip mining, lots of that. They expanded this to the moon Concordia. This, uh, Mandalore has two moons. And Concordia also has Beskar mines And it had trees and stuff, so it was like a good place to actually live. It was habitable, but they started to ruin it with their war machine. Uh, Just overall, more and more of their culture became part of this war machine dedicated to defeating a foe that kind of wasn't beatable. Think of the endless attempts by the Blackfires to beat the Targaryens, when really, I wouldn't say they were unbeatable because the Blackfires got close a couple times, but some of the times... It wasn't particularly close at all, right? The second Blackfire Rebellion, it wasn't even really called a rebellion. The fourth, they barely got past landing, right? So you can see how there's some similarities here in terms of the hopelessness of their cause that they just would not give up. At some point, though, the Jedi... Perhaps tired of the endless wars, perhaps wondering if this is ever going to end, perhaps thinking ahead. Also, because the Jedi were dealing with a bigger enemy. Uh, Mandalorians were a a fierce foe, despite the Jedi's advantage, but the Jedi started having back and forth wars with the Sith. The Sith are, if you're not super familiar with Star Wars, the Sith are basically the, the bad guy Jedi's. Uh, They have force powers as well, but these force powers uh, manifest differently because there's different emotions in play. That's one of the things I really like about star Wars is how your emotional state determines what you can do. It's like George Lucas took the worst things about humans that enable them to rise to power in government and in the world and says, no, it's not their. It's not their skill that enables them to rise this high. It's, their contempt for humans. It's their anger. It's their rage. It's their ability to not have a conscious. That's how certain people rise to power in our world today. And George Lucas wanted to shine a light on that. It's like, yeah, he inverted the power structure to show what's behind it all. Yeah, this is evil emotions, right? I really think it's cool. Now, the Jedi, perhaps because they were dealing with the Sith, were like, well, we got to deal with these Mandalorians once and for all because we've got a a foe that is capable of beating us. We can't be fighting them both at the same time. I'm just guessing. I don't actually know what happens. No one does. But some big battle happened on Mandalore itself between the Jedi and the Defenders and it caused some kind of not entirely understood cataclysm to take place. Kind of like the Doom of Valyria. We're not entirely sure what happened. We know the result. The volcanoes blew up and it Took out the whole continent, basically. Here, it was similar. The planet didn't become uninhabitable, but much of it did. Much of the planet became a lifeless, white desert. Think kind of like a combo of the disputed lands with the Doom of Valyria. So, something in between that. Dome cities had to be built. They couldn't breathe the air as much anymore. By the way, side note, even a lot of Star Wars fans won't know this one. George Lucas originally planned... A much larger doom for mandalore the death star which destroyed alderaan you know princess leia's home originally his plan was for it to destroy mandalore instead of alderaan he changed his mind on that it would make sense to take out this warrior culture to you know as a statement to, to the galaxy to be like look we're destroying this people the greatest warriors of the galaxy. That's how a lot of people would see it with just one, our super weapon. And that, boy, does that make a statement. Uh, It still made a big statement destroying Alderaan and it had the stakes for Princess Leia were much higher that way. Either way, after this cataclysm...
1: Imagine if Leia was raised with
0: Mandalorians. Then you could do both, see? He wasn't thinking. Mandalorian. (laughs) yeah that would be pretty cool (laughs) mandalaya she would be called Mm -hmm. and and would her brother also mandaluke and mandalaya no No, Mm. he wouldn't be raised no he wouldn't be he's too cool (laughs) he's got a different path so mandalore was literally incapable of mounting a threat anymore they were just too weak at the after that they they weren't a galactic threat anymore almost like how valyria was no longer a threat to anyone they stopped being a big player on the on the world scale it seems that there was no one with the title Mandalore during the Cataclysm. It was one of those times where a variety of warlords had taken power, which may be why things got so out of hand, which would be why maybe the Jedi didn't think there was any negotiation that could be done because there was no singular ruler to negotiate with. The other warlords wouldn't respect any sort of pact with with the Jedi uh, because they're not united with each other, let alone uh, with their enemies. We pre- we're pretty sure House Kree's... May have was, taken, was in control after this, or regained control after losing it to these various warlords. And this is an important point, because we're talking about symbols of legitis- legitimacy going forward. And further civil war. Yes, further civil war among the Mandalorians. Well, it's really not that surprising, is it? Westeros is always just a drop of a hat away from civil war itself, right? And there's been so many. Uh, Civil wars fought across the entire continent or just within certain regions. Sometimes the Reach has gone to war against itself with civil conflict. So have most of the other regions, right? Probably all of them, actually. But, lo and behold, after so much war, after so much destruction, especially on their home planet, being confronted with it directly, Mandalorian society finally fractured a bit and a peace movement arose. One of the most prominent of the New Dome cities was the host of this movement, a city called Sundari. Not to be confused with Sunspear. Ha. But of course, plenty of hardcore traditionalists did not want peace at all. They were still stuck in their old ways. This also sort of goes against their rule by the strongest vibe. How do you choose a ruler of monks the strongest when you're all pacifists, right? That doesn't really fit. <laughs> this is very much the competing ideals of Daron the Good versus Damon Blackfire's faction. Progressive peace, Versus the old way. A good example. The old way could also be applied to thinking of the Ironborn, who literally used that phrase. Asha was trying to get them to move along a bit and say, look, we keep losing. Why do we keep losing? (coughs) 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 Why do we keep trying the same thing over and over that doesn't work? Let's do something different. And they're all like, ah, shut up, Asha. We're going to keep losing. (laughs) Thus... This split happened amongst the Mandalorians. The Great Clan Wars came about, and the people were divided into two simple categories new and old Mandalorians. House Krees led the new pacifistic Mandalorians, but they weren't fully pacifistic because they had to fight the old Mandalorians in some cases. Most of the old Mandalorians didn't fight their fellows. They still, a lot of Mandalorians still thought it taboo to fight amongst themselves or found it distasteful. So, some of them just went off to become cell swords. Uh, well, cell blasters, cell jet packs, I don't know. But think of exactly what happened to the people on the losing side of the Blackfire Rebellion. A lot of them went off to become cell swords until being formed into one particular cell sword company, the Golden Company. Now, Duke Adonai Krees led the New Mandalorians at the outset of the war, which is why we think that his house was predominant. But he was killed in one of the first battles, may have been the first battle, uh, and his daughter, Duchess Satine, takes over. She's very much a dare on the good. Very pacifistic uh, and very progressive and very determined and hated by the people that wanted to keep the old ways. Hated by the equivalents of the Blackfires which are the old Mandalorians and some factions that emerged from that, which we'll get to Mm. the Mandalorian protectors, the Kingsguard equivalent were on her side, at least for a while. And the Jedi came to help because they joined the Republic as a weak former power. They were no longer well-equipped to be neutral so they joined the Republic, which again, which also wasn't very popular amongst a lot of Mandalorian hardliners and old school thinkers. One of, predictably, her opponents was House Vizla, who, with the Darksaber, led the rebellion against this new way. Probably as their leaders, though it's not entirely clear. They lose, though. Just like the Fires lost... The House Vizsla lost this challenge to House Krees, And the victory is complete, at least temporarily. And the old Mandalorians, who hadn't already fled and went elsewhere and become sellswords or what happened, uh, were exiled to the moon of Concordia. Sort of like being exiled to Essos, right? So a lot of the old Mandalorians did nothing at first, but some of them eventually started to get back into the swing of things and start to become ambitious again, further angered by the peace movement, further upset by what they saw as, as abandoning what made their people great in the first place. Some of them formed the group death watch. Now this came after a lot of folks back on Mandalore thought they had died out. (laughs) Kind of like thinking John Connington had died out thinking all these exiles were gone. Oops. Not so true, but another parallel. Here's a quote.
1: We are the Death Watch, descendants of the true warrior faith all Mandalorians once knew. Now my people are living in exile because we will not abandon our heritage. Our people were warriors. Strong. Feared.
0: This is Pre-Vizsla speaking, and I can just hear these words coming from Bittersteel's mouth. Instead of we are Death Watch, we are the Golden Company, descendants of the true warrior faith, or you're talking about Blackfires and this and that, talking about exile, talking about not abandoning our heritage, because that's what they want. They want to reclaim the throne and their lost lands. They want their heritage back. Such Golden Company. But even There's even a group of, one of the groups of the, uh, of the Mandalorian Protectors, like the Kingsguard equivalent, they were solo for a while, and they even took skulls on, right? And Death Watch versus the Golden Company's skulls? I mean, hello. Very similar vibes. Also think of Sir Eustace here. Think of Eustace just lamenting the loss of warrior culture, you know, old sad man talking to Duncan Egg. This is, <laughs> this is the same vibes right here. Uh, as well as the following Blackfire rebellions. They kept trying and kept failing. So Previsla plots to overthrow House Crees. He rises to become governor of Concordia, and claims to be helping root out Deathwatch. He's like, "I'm going to help root out these terrorists," because Deathwatch be, basically became a terrorist group. And he's joined in this covert, double, two-faced operation by none other than Satine Kreese's sister, Bocatan. Oh,
1: so she's mean, oh yeah yeah yes Satine's sister yes Duchess Satine
0: yes Duchess Satine yeah. And the John Connington vibes are really strong with Pre Vizsla, too, because in order to achieve his goals, Pre Vizsla allies himself with Death Watch, meaning, you know, like the Golden Company, and with some people who he probably shouldn't, just like John Connington probably shouldn't be trusting Varus and Illyrio, Pre Vizsla shouldn't be trusting the people that he's about to trust, because when powerful houses or factions hate each other, there's always some little finger, some Varus who's out there capable of using that as leverage, of taking your hate and manipulating it into his own benefit. Enter the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars were a much larger conflict between two elements of the Republic that split. There's the Separatists and the Republic. Now, this eventually is going to become the Empire, of course, but this is before that. This was part of Palpatine's plan to split the Republic in two and use the emergency to seize power, etc., He manipulates Count Dooku, who in turn manipulates Pre Vizsla to help overthrow Duchess Satine. Both were using the other. It's like a chain of people using other people. Palpatine's using Dooku, has no intent of giving him anything in the long run. Dooku is using Vizsla, has no intent of giving him anything in the long run. Meanwhile, Vizsla is using Duchess Satine, uh, uh, stating he's helping her while actually working directly against her. He is the... He's the he's the harpy. He's the harpy behind the, the terrorist acts here. So the plan was to get an occupation of Mandalore by incriminating Satine, uh, the Duchess. They're going to try to plot to make it look like she's helping the Separatists, meaning the Republic will then look at Mandalore, who has just joined the Republic, as a problem and thus not help them and incriminate them in these issues. By the way, Din Djarin, the main character of the Mandalorian, was rescued by Death Watch from Separatist forces. That's what happened when he was an orphan. Which, I don't think any Star Wars channel has pointed this out. Death Watch was rescued Din and from Separatist forces. As I just explained, they were working together. <laughs> Death Watch was actually on the side of the Separatists through Dooku and Pre Vizsla, but they were only acting like enemies. So Din Djarin's association with Death Watch is built on a lie. They were actually the reason he was an orphan, not the, as much as they were the reason he was saved. But that's a side story. I just thought it would be fun to point that out. So eventually, though, Pre was exposed as the leader of Death Watch and forced into further exile. He wasn't executed. He was allowed to live. And...
1: So now we're post-Vizsla? We're post-Vizsla now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Death Watch began to act like what we see in Westeros when like a, a sellsword company becomes broken men. They even enslaved a village and forced their women into unspeakable acts and did all sorts of all- evil stuff. Then they teamed up with none other than Darth Maul and his brother, who, again, we have... Two sides joining based on a common grievance. Their grievance is against Palpatine, who screwed them both. Look how much Darth Maul looks like TV. Night King, if you want another parallel. Night King is like if Darth Maul was blue <laughs> instead of black and red, right? It's really similar. His horns on his head. I mean, hello. Very similar. Now, Darth Maul and his brother were like crime lords. They formed a bunch of crime syndicates into one called the shadow collective and this was going to be the backbone of the army to back death watch a lot like the nine penny kings darth maul has a lot in common with malice the monstrous here and another peril exists because one of the many criminal groups that made up shadow collective was the pike syndicate and yes pike is spelled p-y-k-e just like the ironborns pike so They unleashed, and they're very good at it because it's a criminal organization, terrorism on the Mandalorian people. Just like the Sons of the Harpy. They targeted police officers, Secret Service. They targeted officials of the new regime and made it like, you need us. The the death won't stop until you accept us again. Basically, uh, the murders won't stop until you marry his Darzo Lorak. It is very much like that. Deathwatch then swoops in and rescues the Mandalorian people from the terrorists. Like I just said, Din Djarin thought he was being rescued, but in fact, it was actually a setup. This is exactly Varus and Illyrio's plan for Aegon VI. He's going to come in with all the trappings of Targaryen power, including Fire and probably Aegon's crown maybe with a Dane at his side and acting like Rhaegar's son, he's going to be the hero that rescues the the Westerosi people from the Dothraki or the Civil Wars or whatever happens to be the thing they need rescuing from. He's going to look like a hero, and that's going to be his leverage to power. That's exactly what Death Watch, with the backing of Count Dooku and through him, Palpatine had in mind. However, the plan was foiled, uh, initially, and that's actually, I'm, I'm getting a little confused here. That, that plan was foiled before when Previsla was defeated the first time. This time they were a lot more prepared, and it works. Pre actually wins and is named Mandalore uh, and is the king who is bearing the sword at this point. He's still got dark, the Darksaber. Duchess Satine is imprisoned, and then of course, because these guys are all jerks, Previsla immediately Turns on Darth Maul and has him imprisoned, but Darth Maul is a Sith Lord. He's got Force powers. He's not so easy to defeat. He's more like Taravizla than Pre vizla is. Even even though Pre Vizsla is a descendant of Taravizla, Darth Maul's got the Force powers. He challenges Pre Vizsla to single combat for leadership. Again, this is shades of Melee's the Monstrous who challenged his cousin Damon Blackfire. Damon the third or fourth i'm not sure which damon blackfire this was but he killed damon blackfire for leadership of the golden company just as darth maul beheads uh pre-vizsla and claims leadership of mandalore all the mandalorians because he's now the wielder of the darksaber whoops look what you've done mandalorians you've hoisted on your own petard you establish this sword as a symbol of leadership and all of a sudden a real bad guy comes in someone worse than pre-vizsla comes in and claims it and says hey i'm king now he doesn't use the word king of course same difference and a lot of mandalorians are like yep that's how it works he won the sword in single combat he even cut Pre head off with the Darksaber. He disarmed him and then executed him with his own sword just to emphasize his victory and to make a big statement. Death Watch, most of Death Watch sticks with Darth Maul. They put horns on their helmets too. Vic, real life Vikings didn't have horns on their helmets, but these guys did. And they took on Darth Maul's colors. So they look pretty sinister and Darth Maul's colors are red and black, y'all. <laughs> pretty familiar Targaryen Blackfire stuff. Somewhere during the Clone Wars, by the way, as you saw in the movies, if you saw the movies, Mace Windu, that's Samuel L. Jackson's Jedi, kills Jango Fett, who was the uh, clone seed for all the Stormtrooper clones. And that's why Boba Fett hates Jedi as well, because a Jedi killed his father. So we see the Mandalorian Jedi hatred in modern times as well. It's just a recurring thing. Bo-Katan Kree's... Remember, that Satine's sister who fought against her, is now having second thoughts. She doesn't accept Darth Maul's rule. She's one of the first people to be like, oops, this was not what we wanted. We didn't intend this at all. We wanted to restore our old values. This guy does not reflect our old values. He kind of used a loophole, a technicality to take power. They liberate Satine from prison and ask the Republic for help. But Mandalore had become neutral during the Clone Wars because of the events of this being blamed for separatist help and all that and they didn't want to be embroiled after having suffered so much destruction. So this kind of backfired a little because the Republic's like, look, we can't help you. You guys went neutral on us. But, because of personal friendships, Obi-Wan Kenobi comes to help. He was actually, maybe even in love with Duchess Satine.
1: Yeah, they're real ship together.
0: They are a real ship. Yeah. But, Maul foils this plot, and as revenge, he executes Duchess Satine for them making this attempt. So, think of Cersei executing <laughs> Missandei, uh in Game of Thrones TV show. Kind of like that. There's probably another equivalent in the books, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. And... Maul is that, at that point, Maul's power rises even higher. You may be wondering, like, when is the timeline of this? Wasn't Darth Maul already killed by Obi-Wan Kenobi at this point in the Star Wars timeline? Yes. But if you saw saw the movie Han Solo, you would know that Darth Maul survived being cut in half. He has, like, spider legs. And, you know, force powers are part of how he stayed alive. And his pure hatred kept him alive. (laughs) Just the anger of being defeated kept him alive. So he, but he was kicked out of his uh, mentorship of by Palpatine. Palpatine didn't want him anymore. He had moved on to Dooku, which was also just a temporary until Anakin. But that's a whole nother story. Uh, so Palpatine's like, all right, you're still around, Maul? I thought you were dead and I was done with you. He didn't like that Maul was gaining power again. So he comes in by himself, kills Maul's brother and defeats Maul, captures him, tortures him, puts him in prison, holds him there. and uh, I'm not entirely sure what he wanted to get out of him by torturing him, but it's Emperor Palpatine. He's an evil guy. It may have just been something to do for fun. Now, a Sith crushing a Sith in this case because one Sith is just way more powerful than the other is kind of like what we expect Danny to do to a Targaryen without dragons. <laughs> a Targaryen with dragons versus a Targaryen without dragons. Like, you kind of don't think it'll be much of a contest. But because Palpatine didn't kill Darth Maul and kept him in prison, and because Darth Maul had so many hardcore loyalists who believed. Because of Mandalorian values, that he's their real leader. He's the guy that won, so he's the he's the wielder of the dark saber. Thus, he's our leader. That's how it goes. They broke him out of prison. I mean, Palpatine's got a lot going on, right? He's got he's busy trying to start an empire here, and he returns to Mandalore, reclaims power, starts to build back up again. Bocatan arrives with help from the New Republic. That has since, uh, you know, defeated uh, the separatists, and the siege of Mandalore happens. Darth Maul is captured again. The siege of Mandalore, led by Bo-Katan and the, and the New Republic elements, and Bo-Katan is named regent. So she rises to power here. She's named regent after the separatists are defeated. But before Palpatine's master plan is complete of flipping the Republic into the Empire. So while Bocatan is regent for the new Republic, she finds herself now regent under Imperial occupation because the power that was in charge flipped while she was in this office. She refuses to cooperate with the new Imperial occupation. They're like ordering her to round people up and... Send them. Best guard. Just asking her to have her people do things that are very much against their virtues, but are very normal for the Imperials. The Imperials turn a lot of worlds into just mining operations, just part of the war machine. Which the Mandalorians were kind of already used to, but they had gotten sick of. They're like, "Our, we've already turned our world into a war machine all these years, and it's we've kind of had enough of that." Our planet certainly had enough of that. She's betrayed by. One of the uh one of the people from her own house. Or rather, sorry, from House Vizla, one of Maul's loyalists. One of the people who broke him out of prison, a guy named Gar Saxon. Gar Saxon makes a deal with the Empire to overthrow Bo Katan, and he's named Imperial Viceroy and familiar title, the Emperor's Hand. <laughs> Kinda like Hand of the King, obviously. He opens an Imperial War Academy there. They're like what better place to open a war academy amongst a people that are known for their martial virtues? However, another element within House Visla Clan Wren, comes to the fore. Remember, House Visla is made up of Clan Wren, Clan Saxon, and Clan Vizsla, and maybe other houses as well. Now, Clan Wren, at this point, the focal character is Sabine Wren, not to be confused with Satine Krees, Sabine, not Satine. <laughs> Sabine grew up idolizing Tara Vizsla. She visited the statue when she was young. Keep in mind, this wouldn't have happened in Westeros because Bloodraven saw the value of such symbols and didn't allow them. Bloodraven wouldn't allow them to even sing songs of the Blackfires. Certainly no statues were there. People made pilgrimages to the redgrass field because that's just a sight. But Bloodraven wasn't even too big on allowing that. (laughs) Sabine Wren at first joins the new empire. She's excited about it because the empire's propaganda worked pretty well. They convinced a lot of people that they were bringing order and justice to the galaxy. Of course, that was nonsense. That was bull. The Emperor was just lying and using propaganda. But a lot of people fell for it. I mean, we're talking about an entire galaxy here. Not everyone's privy to the events happening elsewhere. It's pretty easy to control information. The internet doesn't span all these planets. <laughs> They're a version of it anyway. So Sabine f- starts off as a uh, like an ambitious well, a very successful technology person within the Empire. She develops, helps develop a super weapon that gets used against her own people. And that's what turns her back against it. She's like, oh no, what have I done? I helped build a super weapon that was used against my own people. So she joins the rebellion, which, so like kind of early on, like right before A New Hope, this is when she's she joins. And she redons her family's armor, her family's Mandalorian armor, which is, 500 years old, by the way. That's pretty cool. She is able to retrieve the Darksaber from Darth Maul's homeworld in a side, basically a side quest. <laughs> she doesn't know what it is at first. She doesn't know the whole story, but just so happens that she's with someone named Fen Rao, who was a Mandalorian protector, a, Mandal- a la Barristan. You have a young person from a noble family Who doesn't know everything about their family's history. That gets some things wrong. That gets told the truth by an elder Kingsguard Barristan. Here we have a Mandalorian protector telling Sabine Wren the full history of the Darksaber. And that inspires her. She reunites with her family. Gathers support. They offer the Darksaber to Bo-Katan. And she accepts it. This turns out to be a mistake or backfires somewhat or blackfires somewhat, because it does lead to another civil war. But this time they weren't only against each other, but they're against the empire because clan Saxon has a deal with the empire. And even though clan Saxon is part of house Vizsla. So there's a split amongst house Vizsla and a split amongst the Mandalorians and a split amongst the empire as the rebellion is breaking out. So bo has mu- enough support amongst the people during these hard times to become Mandalore, the Vizlas, the Wrens, the Creeses, the Rooks, the Eldars, and Fen Rao, the sole remaining protector, because during some events, uh, the other protectors are killed. So he's the only one left. So they all bend the knee to her as Mandalore. But because she didn't win the Darksaber in combat, her rule wasn't very strong. In particular, this view is held by the Children of the Watch, who are descendants of Death Watch. Children of the Watch. <laughs> that kind of sounds... You got a lot of Game of Thrones terms in there. you got Children of the Forest and the Night's Watch kind of mashed into, into one there. The Children of the Watch are pretty hardcore. They bring back a lot of old values. They believe that even though they don't believe the sword gives someone the right to rule, they don't believe that the Darksaber gives, makes you Mandalore, because that's a newer belief. They believe the old way they still believe that accepting the Darksaber as a gift is a, would bring a curse on Mandalore, on the people and the planet. And then subsequent events would sort of justify that belief. Even if bo rule had been strong, it probably wouldn't have been enough to stop what was coming because the Empire, before the rebellion was complete, the Empire retaliated brutally against the overthrow of gar saxon who was killed and then gar saxon's brother tyber took over and tyber was also killed so they just came kind of like the valyrian freehold did when they decided they finally wanted to really go to war with the rhoynar they sent 300 dragons right this is basically what they did to mandalore the empire sent just a ton of bombers and bombed it into oblivion it was called the purge of Mandalore that culminated in the night of a thousand tears where Bokatan led her people in kind of a desperate attempt to stop the the killings didn't work. She surrendered the dark saber to ISB chief Moff Gideon or sorry ISB chief Gideon who later became Moff Gideon on the condition that they stop slaughtering Mandalorians. He was like thanks for the sword but never mind I will not uphold my end of the bargain and kept on slaughtering Mandalorians. This was basically a genocide. So the children of the Watch were like, we told you, we told you doing this would be a curse. And this was sort of like completed the doom of Mandalore. The prior destruction of the surface of the planet still left it inhabitable. They still had domed cities and stuff. This was, this was it basically, at least what people thought. It was truly uninhabitable. Or was it? That's what people thought. Uh, people thought it was people the people like the children of the watch spread the rumor that it was cursed other people said it was just uninhabitable due to the radioactive fallout or the equivalent but there's some evidence that this rumor was spread by people who wanted people to believe that this comes back to our discussion about Euron and maybe people of Volantis who make it sound like Valyria is less inhabitable than it might be so Gideon is still in charge of this sector. This is like kind of his division that he's been assigned when the empire falls, when the empire emperor is killed by uh, Vader, throwing him into the reactor there and Luke and they get off the new death star and escape and all that. The empire falls. Moff Gideon, who has been promoted to Moff by this point, tries to reform the empire, uh, in his own image, quite literally with clones of himself. But He does like a Euron thing here. This is the other reason I bring Euron back around. Because he's using all the best parts, as he sees it, of various cultures to seize power. Kind of like Euron is using Valyrian steel. He's using old magic. using blood magic. He's using Valyrian ideals. He's using ironborn ideals. He's he's murdering all the gods. He's challenging the existing status quo and breaking it down. Gideon was doing a lot of the same things. He's using cloning. Kind of like the Valyrian energy there. Force powers, the Darksaber, and Beskar. All the best of uh, the things he thought were the best of multiple cultures merged into one and using that to make himself and his army into this unbeatable thing, or so he thought. Enter Din Djarin again and Grogu, a.k.a. Star Wars' version of Dunkin' Egg, the parallel made even stronger by the fact that Din Djarin is Pedro Pascal, a.k.a. the Red Viper. By the way, Robert Strong never takes off his helmet either. <laughs> 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 so Dinjar Djar, just while out in the world with Grogu doing his thing, getting into adventures, hunting bounties, he encounters Bo-Katan, and in fact rescued by her and some of her people uh, while they're just out there in the world now. There's not very many of them, so they're just making a living as against sellswords, kind of. But he gets embroiled with them and manages to defeat moff gideon in personal combat and wins the darksaber he doesn't understand what's just happened he doesn't understand what beating someone with the dark who's wielding the darksaber means he doesn't know that he's just fulfilled in some mandalorian people's minds the very thing that makes you mandalore and this is maybe like what we'll see with dark sister if dark sister pops up in blood raven's cave they may bran and mirror and them maybe like oh, this is a nice sword. They won't know just how much history is involved in that sword and uh, who owned it and all that other stuff. So he goes back and as the wielder of the Darksaber, he's challenged by another descendant of House Visla, Paz Vizla, but he wins the challenge and keeps the Darksaber. Even while not believing in its significance that much. But, you know, he's a Mandalorian and he's not going to back down from a fight. This guy wants his sword. He's like, no, it's my sword. He wants to give it to Bo-Katan. He's like, I want to give this to you because I don't believe in it. And you could unite our people. You are a royal from a royal family. You have experience leading. People will follow you. But she's like, you can't just give it to me. Look what happened when people gave it to me before. They don't accept it if you give it to me. Events play out that enable a loophole of sorts. He's defeated by a spider robot creature that lives in the ruins of Mandalore and she rescues him while rescuing the Darksaber and using it to defeat this creature or this droid thing. So they're able to convince a lot of Mandalorians that this means that she has effectively won the Darksaber from him by saving him from the thing that was going to kill him. This is sketchy. But whatever, they go that's for Mandalaw it. Mandalaw for you. <laughs> Mandalaw. Yeah,
1: they're all Mandaloyers and they Mandal- know. They've read the fine print and they realize.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, that's basically what happens there. They're like, ah.
0: So here's where bo becomes more of a Daenerys. She unites a disparate people while having seemingly nothing to work with other than her heritage. By the way, bo red hair she doesn't bathe in blood as danny is said to do but the actress katie sackoff doesn't have red hair so she did need red hair dye for that <laughs> so there is some bathing in blood going on mm. <laughs> i so dinjarin basically gives up the darksaber and kneels to her and it's like i swear my house to yours is it possible that's what will happen with aegon the six will he bend the knee to danny because she's got dragons and is like look i'm really the real targaryen here that might be a little too happy of an outcome, but it's possible. I mean, if you look at the example of Game Pale Palehair becoming the food taster for Egg on the Third rather than you know being executed as a pretender, I don't know you could see something like that maybe Bo-Katan also like Danny, pivots from fighting her own people to fighting the bigger bad, the bigger enemy in and there's a parallel here too because the bigger bad in Game of Thrones, of course is. The Others on the TV show, it's Night King, which again is Darth Maul, <laughs> which Bo-Katan was focusing on for a while there. And then eventually focusing on the Empire, fighting the Big Bad Empire. And the Empire, surely we can make parallels to the Empire and the, uh, the Whites and the Others in Winter. I mean, the Stormtroopers as comparison to Whites, they're all like uniform and identical and not terribly competent and... Not, you know, and centrally controlled almost. especially Even more so if it's if you're looking at a droid army like that. Literally centrally controlled by a single being. Or multiple single beings, each with their own, like, group of, of undead. By the way, we made the joke about Gre- the Knight of Gren. Mark Stanley, who plays Gren and a Knight of Wren. Also, a man named Spencer Wilding? That's almost Spencer Wildling. Plays... Darth Vader in Rogue One and one of the White Walkers in Game of Thrones, so yet another crossover with an actor there. A lot of people have been in both Star Wars and Game of Thrones. For one of example, the more
1: unusual ones though to be Darth Vader and a White Walker.
0: Yeah, definitely. One of the other examples, a more famous one, is since we're talking about Danny now, Amelia Clark was yes. in the Shadow Collective as yes. Kira, a subordinate to Darth Maul.
1: <laughs> that's true
0: that's quite a turnaround for daenerys
1: she was quite good in that i was very skeptical that i would be like able to accept her in that role and i agree i she surprised me it's I'm too just, bad that yeah. movie
0: didn't do as well and yeah. they didn't you know they
1: followed up a little bit with it in the comics a little that's bit. True. but yeah. like i would like to see more of specifically that like I like the darker stuff. That's why I'm excited for the acolyte. Like, I, I would like to see the darker side of things and not just the, the good people.
0: Agree. Yeah, I want to see what makes them what makes them tick, why, they, why they're motivated. And I think yeah. Star Wars does villains pretty well. It yeah, it's sense. but it's
1: hard for them to do. And the Disney Star Wars, like, how, like, I mean, that's what they ran into with the Book of Boba Fett, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, they can't really show what a sleazy person would be like because they're kind of sanitized in that respect. Yeah. So you can't mm-hmm. really show the mafia.
0: Yeah, uh, mm-hmm, that's true. Like, they, did, any- they had the same problem with Thrawn, how he's he's kind of a good guy to his people and kind of a good guy if you read the books. But to the, to the rebels in the Alliance, he's a bad guy, very much so. And those are the real good guys from a lot yeah. of people's perspective. So yeah, it is a little confusing in that sense, but very fun. Another really strong Danny Bocatan parallel is that... Bo-Katan is the one who witnesses a living mythosaur again. She discovers and sees it and is the only one to witness it. Now, obviously plenty of other people see Danny's dragons, but it's this feminine character, this leader figure, this royal who's restoring their people again that is the one that has this connection to the true symbol of their house. The one that gave them the power in the first place so long ago that is now back again. We kind of We'd see Bo Katan ride a mythosaur in the show. Maybe she will in a future season, like Danny rides her dragon. Danny didn't ride her dragon right away, though, so building up to that also would be a parallel. So Bo Katan proceeds to reunite her scattered people and lead them back to reclaim their home, kind of like Danny is, well, in the process of doing that. Not everyone believes in the Darksaber as a symbol of rule still, and neither does she. Now I wonder how that will go for Danny. Is that a lesson for us? Something to think about, maybe? Because the Darksaber is destroyed at the end. Now, there's nothing preventing it from being rebuilt. It could It's not some fully unique item that no one knows how to make another one of, but symbolically being destroyed, does that mean the Mandalorian people will maybe stop fighting each other so much? Is this a, the destruction of this blade that brought them so much pain and suffering because so many people used it to try to take over i mean there's periods of time that we skipped over in mandalorian history where the dark saber was used to seize power if not uh, in attempts that didn't succeed or some that did and some that only succeeded partially like it, it was repeatedly used to reunite house creeds we're talking about i'm sorry house visla we're talking about a larger span of time than a song of ice and fire of course but even as we're talking about a very similar overall span of time of about ten thousand years is the Iron Throne going to be destroyed at the end? Would that be a similar sort of ending of an artifact or object that itself, the pursuit of, has caused so much death and destruction? Maybe Blackfire will be destroyed. Now, Blackfire isn't as important of a symbol in A Song of Ice and Fire yet. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a lot more so to those of us who really pay attention, those who look looked, who listen to podcasts regularly and, and read the uh, extra material, as we pointed out many times. The sword Blackfire has never been mentioned in the main five books. So it's a little harder to see it as such an important symbol. But again, we're all pretty sure that it's going to become one. George is kind of keeping it close to the cuff or close to the chest cuff. both, yeah. sure. It's close to his chest cuff. At the end of the Game of Thrones TV show, we see Jon Snow walking away from the wall. And he's smiling and there's some greenery growing. It's like, oh, look, it's like a dream of spring, right? There's like a hope for the future. The same thing happens near the end of the Mandalorian TV show most recent season where there's a sort of side scene where you see some survivors on Mandalore who didn't get off planet during either of the cataclysms. Maybe there were others too. (laughs) Any of the cataclysms. They stayed. They managed to survive. It is a whole planet after all. And started to try to like replant and and make new green spaces. So, there is also a dream of spring element to the Mandalorian Civil Wars and maybe a hope that they can get their act together and stop fighting each other. It's one thing to have a warrior culture. It's another thing to just always go at it with each other and and constantly destroy yourselves. At least in their early history, they were fighting other people, which isn't, you know, ethical. But it's less stupid. (laughs) It's less (laughs) self-destructive. And we can maybe hope that's something that is coming and we'll maybe even see f- future parallels. After all, both of these stories are still ongoing. We don't know the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. We don't know the true fate of the Blackfires, the Targaryens, Danny, the Iron Throne, the sword, her dragons. Just as we don't know the ultimate fate of the Mandalorians as a people, as individuals. What will happen with Bo-Katan, what will happen with Dinjarin? what will happen some of these houses, will they reemerge? Will they become important? What kind of political system will they have? That's a question for Game of Thrones, too. If the Iron Throne is destroyed, are they going to form new kingdoms? Are they going to change their style of leadership? Mandalorians went through lots of iterations of government that kept coming back to the old way, right? They had things like a prime minister for a while. Duchess Satine appointed a prime minister when she was in power. But people tried to bring it back to the old way of Mandalore, No, the most powerful warrior rules us, and if no one is the most powerful warrior, then we exist in a state of violent chaos until someone does. You can see why that's not good, but they kept it going for so long, just like Westeros has been going for so long in this state of not advancing technologically, not moving forward culturally. We might see that when the books are done, or as sort of a coda or epilogue, some sense of growth some sort of finally a change something to come out of it but even if that does happen there may be elements that try to drag them back into the darkness of history into times that weren't so good you know some traditions are good some cultural traditions are worth following and holding but don't just uphold them because they're traditions don't just do what your ancestors did for the sake of doing what your ancestors did so there's some real life lessons in there too i think Uh, Which is something that George likes to, both Georges, George Lucas and George R. R. Martin, like to impart in their stories. They like to get at the human heart in conflict with itself, or a human society in conflict with itself, which might be a more appropriate way of framing what we've discussed today. Because while there were a lot of individuals, and a lot of them had conflict, like Bo-Katan going against her sister, but also going against her people. Like, what side does she take? Or Danny, is she more interested in the throne or saving her people from the others which is more important well i think we know which is more important but her choices along the way are going to be what makes this story interesting and the reason we're going to read and reread it and i think the mandalorian has some simple things to offer uh, it's not as it doesn't have the uh, you know the depth of george r. r martin i think but the world building is great i think it's very strong and the expanded star wars universe has given us a lot more to dig into I, for one, am very happy with it. I know Shea is a big fan, too. We watch a lot of these shows together. Well, we watch them all together, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> now, personally, I haven't seen a lot of the animated show. I haven't. A lot of these things happen in Clone Wars and Rebels. A lot of things I've described, I haven't actually seen very much of that. Uh, I have read a lot of books, seen all the movies, and seen all the TV shows that aren't animated. Shea is basically the same as me on that um, so we're, we're kind of similar in that regard.
1: We're currently watching Star Wars Visions. Yeah. So We've seen the first five or six episodes of season two. I mean, like the yeah. new season came out. But yeah, that's our current Star Wars consumption.
0: Speaking of visions, e- there's even Ooh. prophecy and vision within the world of Star Wars. Of course, there's things like the chosen one that they thought Anakin was going to be. Uh, and he was kind of in a way. And they mis- mis- misunderstood that prophecy, right? They thought the chosen one that would bring balance to the force was what anakin was and they misunderstood that prophecy which is a recurring feature of a song of ice and fire of course in fact that person that restored balance to the force did so by restoring the dark side to power to be in balance with the light side which had been winning out for some time so yep even that has some parallels in a song of ice and fire uh, as well and the armorer tells bo when bo reveals that she saw the mythosaur Bo uh the armorer responds Those who walk the way see many visions. So in this, it's meant to be more of a religious vision, which is a real world thing. People have religious visions, whether they're, you know, real or not, quote unquote, is way outside the scope of this episode. But people see them as real. They act on them as real. They write books about them as if they're real and all that. And that that has an effect as if it's real, uh, whether it really is or not for a lot of people. Same is true in these fantasy worlds, these space fantasy or medieval fantasy or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the characters, as great as they are, as, as breathe, living, breathing as they are, draws us to them and makes us want to learn more about them. My final question for, for you all is I wonder if George R. Martin has seen The Mandalorian. I just, I think he's talked about watching a lot of the new Star Wars shows. So I'm guessing he has. So I wonder he if it reverse it, He influence hasn't mentioned in
1: his blog post, at
0: least. Yeah, he hasn't, but I, I think he... Is a fan, and he does watch plenty of TV. So I don't know, maybe not, but I would wonder if he watches it and, and notices any of these same parallels. He's like, "Hey, that's kind of like Black Fire, <laughs> you know, Dark mm-hmm. Saber made of Black Fire. That's like mm-hmm. my sword." So I will I, I hope the day comes where he comments on that, um, and because obviously there's other, he has other ties to Star Wars, given uh, the Ralph McQuarrie stuff and other little things like that. So we can hope, we can hope, and, and maybe some more things will emerge couple of questions from y'all here as we wrap things up. Guilty Undertaker says, Both Star Wars and Moulin Rouge have a character named Satine who falls in love with a character played by Ewan McGregor and dies tragically. Yeah. Whoa. I that parallel. I, I, I didn't knew know that. that. Be, I've never that seen would... Moulin Rouge. Wait, really? I knew Ewan McGregor was in it. You've but never seen Moulin Rouge? I never have.
1: You should watch Moulin Rouge. Okay.
0: <laughs> it's, my fa- it's
1: like my favorite. Mu- I know you don't like musicals, but it's my favorite musical. My favorite Baz Luhrmann movie. Mm. And he's one of my favorite. I it's my favorite romance, for sure. Anyways, yes.
0: Is there a fight it. between the Moulin Rouges and the Moulin Noirs? The, the <laughs> Reds and the Blacks, right? Yeah. No. Yeah, we're watching it. J.S. Holgerson says, but who is the hot pie of Star Wars? Hot pew or hoth pie? Hoth pie. <laughs> I think hoth pie. That's ice cream pie. Ice cream pie, yeah.
1: Cream pie, yeah. <laughs> That's like that. I, Cold pie. Two yeah.
0: points for you, J.S. Holgerson. That's a good one. Meredith says, so here's a question. In... uh." Clone Wars, and Bad, bad bat. Bats, we learned that the hide of the Zillow Beast can withstand lightsabers. In the Song of Ice and Fire, could one make armor out of dragon scales? If yes, what would it do? Ooh. I don't see why not. I mean, unless I- dragon scales just like... D- you know rot or fall apart, that's I why think I would see would. why
1: not. Is that like if we haven't seen it in the series, I have to wonder if there is okay. a, de- a degradation that happens without that's life. a good
0: point. The fact that it doesn't exist is a strong argument against it, you yeah. Know, I think to me, they
1: but like otherwise, yeah, I think for sure, dragon scale armor would like I think people would be using it, whether for armor or for decoration or for any kind of like they would be using dragon scales, I think, if they lasted. You know, I feel like you could make them into leather. There's a chance
0: know. it's a taboo. Like the Valyrians were like, "No, we don't do that." But then, like the once the Valyrian
1: culture died, and like, yeah, I would Like, like as soon as like, when someone like, else like, skin like, a dragon, like, like, yeah. like when Maraxis like dies in Dorne, why would they not make use of that skin? It's a very
0: good point. So yeah, yeah. I, I, that's a good point. It probably isn't possible. Someone yeah. would have done it. Like they've made hides yeah. out of everything else. Like why wouldn't they? Yeah. Have, they it's kind of unbelievable if they wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. Especially because they, they surely did take the bones because that stuff's valuable. You yeah know, like, yeah. Like the yeah they did
1: t- we, they, they use the bones yeah, yeah we know that so dragon that's bone hilts here, here and there yeah um
0: good point so yeah i i wonder if there's any other like heavily armored beasts in in a song of ice and fire that, that you could make armor out of like uh oh, yeah.
1: like the old
0: unit like those yeah like, the, a, the, like a unicorn no. yeah the, the unicorns, unicorns and stuff it's like, that. Something yeah. with, like
1: stronger hide perhaps <laughs> you know a little
0: bit Christina Cadill says, or Cadill, I, n- I never do know how to quite say your name, Christina's Christina. Christina's
1: told you as many times we can say Christina Kay.
0: I know, and I forgot that when I said it. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I should have just said Christina Kay. <laughs> she says, man, I didn't know any of this, but Bo-Katan was not kidding when she said the Mandalorians are their own worst enemy. Right? They kind of make the Ironborn look <laughs> like patsies in how, maybe not, though. It's a similar span of time they've been losing. <laughs> and often to themselves. But it's the ironborn at least have that taboo against fighting each other which is not always upheld but that probably helps them in a way that the mandalorans don't have so but something i forgot to mention by the way there it was kind of an irony that the children of the Watch's beliefs became so powerful because they were exiled to concordia and then those cataclysms happened so they were one of the few subgroups that didn't get wiped out so it's like the old guard it was a benefit being exiled when all the people le- left on the homeworld were slaughtered. So, little note I forgot to mention there. All right, folks. The trivia question. The question was, which location on the Iron Islands has the best forges? The answer is Lord'sport. Hmm. Lord'sport. Yes. Lords, no one guessed. It said they make axes, swords, ringmail, and hauberks second to none in Seven Kingdoms. Yes. Another reason to fear the Ironborn is they are actually pretty good at making armor and weapons, unlike a lot of, like, piratical cultures.
1: Piratical. All right,
0: That's yeah. Next radical. week is Highgarden. Pirate. If you want to stay immersed... Well, what better place than to check out our Blackfire Rebellion series. All of them, not just the Bloodraven ones at the end, but also the Ninepenny King stuff. We mentioned them as uh, pirate lords and such, which would make a good fit for the Deathwatch's alliance with the Shadow Collective. Lots of parallels there. So check that out if you're so inclined. Otherwise, we'll see you next week for another new episode. Thanks to y'all who came and, and participated live. Thanks to those of you who support us on Patreon or Spotify with a subscription, a voluntary uh, monetary donation you give every month is really important to keeping our show going and keeping us strong and healthy. Thanks to Joey and Jesse and Bran and Michael Klarfeld for our video intro, our music, all that great stuff. Thanks to our Benjineer for the sound quality assistance. Thanks to... Those of you who came to see me on Twitch, we've moved our game streams over to Twitch. We played Tywin Lannister this past Friday, and that was good times. Playing Tywin, trying to roleplay a ruthless evil dude. You know, it's not, not my normal attitude, but it's one of the fun things of playing that game is trying to roleplay these characters we know so well and trying to role-play the ones we don't know so well also. <laughs>
1: yeah, and we need to get a certain number of streams in in a 30-day period on Twitch in order to unlock certain features. So I think we're going to do just some random little live streams on there, playing some games. I play some fighting games in my free time, yeah, like Street Fighter and Tekken and Skullgirls and other fighting games. And so I think I will do a couple sessions playing that, if Maybe you if any favorite. of those games sound
0: great to you, let us know. It I mean, you could play with a particular way. I mean, you can play
1: with me. Like That's it's true. the kind of thing where I could be like, "Hey, log on and let me send you the invite code, and we could play yeah. fighting games together." Good point. But really, it's just that we need to get seven streams in a month that are each over an hour. So this is our Twitch channel, not the YouTube. But yeah, if you're interested in that, then you know fighting games, Crusader Kings maybe some beat saber if i'm real ambitious with that. Might we'll try
0: Witcher 3 on there. That's a real popular game. I haven't played it, and we already have, you know, a lot of uh-huh. we do a Witcher podcast, so that could be some comparisons. So if you if yeah. any of those games sound appealing to you, let us know. We'll we'll yeah. partly decide based on feedback. Yeah. And of course the the Friday streams of Crusader Kings 2 for A Song of Ice and Fire Three. will continue. Sorry, Crusader Kings 3, that's right. <laughs> Important distinction there. Yeah. We'll continue, especially in June. We'll be hitting it hard in June and then it'll be a little more periodic after that, but still pretty regular.
1: But yeah. All
0: right. All right. Folks, you know what to do until next time. Same as always. This is still as important as always. Valar, reread us.